2 Timothy chapter 1. You picked a good morning to be here because this morning we are starting a new seven-week series where we, where we are talking about our values, our values as a church. And I want to say up front that these values are not new. These values are not values that did not previously exist. These are values that have been at the heart and the DNA of our church for over 30 years, but we're just bringing some definition and some clarity and some language to it. And so we're really excited. Uh, Really, I want to encourage all of you to commit yourselves to the next seven weeks of being here so you can really understand what is the heart and DNA of Trinity. And if you have to miss a Sunday, I know we have people who are traveling this weekend and sick this weekend. I know that happens, of course, and working. If you have to miss a Sunday, you can always listen online. But I want to encourage all of us to really lean in to these next seven weeks so we can understand what matters most to us as a church, our values. Let me start with answering an important question. We're going to dive right in this morning. Start with this question. What are values? How do we define values? And I just came up with a short definition. There's some maybe better ones than this or more thorough ones than this, but this will help us. Values are deeply held beliefs that inform behavior and shape culture. Okay, is that easy to remember? Values are deeply held beliefs or convictions that inform behavior. They inform the way that we live, the things that we do, the decisions that we make. They also shape our culture, who we are as a church, who we are as a people. You know, every organization, every family, every team, every person has values. Whether they take the time to write them down or not, they have them. You may not see them written on their walls. You may not see them written on their website, but you will experience it in every interaction you have with them. Two of my favorite companies are Chick-fil-A, God bless fried chicken, Chick-fil-A, and Wegmans, two of my favorites, Chick-fil-A and Wegmans. I, ironically, they're both places you can get food from. That might tell you something about me. But uh, what's interesting is that when you look at their values, because they're value-driven companies, like every company actually is a value-driven company, whether they realize it or write it down or not, Chick-fil-A has a value called customers first. And if you go there, you'll experience it. They'll say things like, my pleasure, after uh, you say thank you. They're, they will come out to you and refill your drinks. Not many fast food restaurants do that. They'll come and find you and they'll refill your drinks. They'll do anything because the customer is first. And I love that because I'm a customer and I love being first. <laughs> then you look at Wegmans, and I expected them to have a similar value, but their value actually is quite different. It almost seems to be the opposite. Their value is employees first, customer second. Now, that's interesting. When I looked into that, now Wegmans is always rates as one of the best companies in the country to work for. And I looked into that, their whole premise, their whole mindset is this. If your employees are happy, then guess who else will be happy? Your customers. So in the end, they're both thinking about their customers, but they have a different value, a different strategy. Uh, Chick-fil-A says customers first. Wegmans says employees first, customers second, knowing that customers will benefit from happy employees. Now here's what we need to notice. What's important about their values and why those values work is not because they've written them down. What makes a value work is because they've embodied them, because they live them out, because they're a part of them. And that's why I want to challenge us as a church with up front in this series. What makes us who we are is not that we have values written down. It's fine to write them down, but we have to embody these. We have to live these. These have to be who we are. And so today we're going to begin our series on our values with a look at our first value, which is the gospel. You just saw this video. Our first value is the gospel. Now, in 1996, I was working at a small gas station in Lima, New York, where I went to Bible school, and I listened to game six of Yankees Braves World Series. 
And if you remember that World Series at all, the Yankees lost the first two games and everybody thought it was over. Sorry, Tony, Braves fan, sorry to bring this up. Yankees won or lost the first two games at home, actually. Then they went to Atlanta where they won three in a row and then they came back and they won game six and won their first World Series in 18 years. Now, I was 18 at the time, so it was really their first World Series in my lifetime. And I remember listening to it in the gas station. And the gas station was about a mile from the campus where I lived, and it was mostly uphill. And so as soon as the game was over, and as soon as I could close down the gas station, I was so excited to tell everybody that the Yankees were the world champions for the first time in my life, I took off running. Now, I'm not a runner. I don't run. In fact, if you ever see me running, you better start running too because something bad, something bad's coming. I don't run. But I took off running and I ran up hills all the way to my dorm just to, just to celebrate, just because I had something that I wanted to tell people. And because the message was so important, I was willing to use any method to get the message out even doing something I never do, which is run. And we talk about the gospel. This is what our value is, that we share the only message that works using any method that works. Does that make sense? We are committed as a church to sharing the only message that works. And the only message that works is the gospel. The only message that works is who Jesus is and what he's done. We're committed to sharing the only message that works using what? Any method. Any method, short of sin. Any method that works. Why? Because the message deserves to be heard. The message needs to be heard. And so we're committed to any method. Well, what is the gospel? Let me give you a quick definition of the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God is rescuing, redeeming, and restoring all creation in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. I know that's a mouthful, but I couldn't really say it much shorter without feeling like I did it justice, okay? The gospel is the good news that God is rescuing, redeeming, and restoring all of creation in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. There's five things that you should notice from this definition. The first thing is this, that the gospel is what? It's good news. It's good news. It's not good advice. It's not here's how you should live your life. It's here what happened for you. It's something that's completed, that's been done. So the gospel is good news. The second thing that you should notice is that is God is rescuing, redeeming, and restoring, which means although it happened in the past, it's got ongoing implications in the present, and it has a major impact on our future. So the gospel is ongoing. The third thing that you should notice from this definition is whose work is this? It's God's work. God is the protagonist. God is the one who acts. God is the one who, we don't rescue ourselves. Amen? We don't restore ourselves. We don't renew ourselves. We can't make ourselves whole. We can't make ourselves new. God does the work. The fourth thing you should notice in this definition is that it's for all of creation, not just humanity. I mean, I know we're important, right? We feel like we're pretty important. But God actually has a plan for all of creation to restore and renew everything he created to its original intent. And then the last thing that we need to notice is that it's all because of Jesus, all right? So this definition gives us five things to consider. But this morning, what we're gonna do is we're gonna actually even look closer at the gospel. Some of you are like, oh, that's enough information for one Sunday. Let's just process that. But we're gonna look a little closer and we're gonna look at a passage in 2 Timothy chapter 1. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, just to give you a little context, this letter was written by the Apostle Paul, who wrote about two-thirds of the New Testament, and he's nearing the end of his life. Paul is imprisoned 
and he's about to be uh, killed, executed for his faith. And he's writing a letter to his spiritual son, whose name is Timothy. That's where we get the name of the book. In fact, this is one of Paul's most personal, heartfelt letters that you're ever going to read. And Timothy, who is Timothy? Timothy is a young pastor who is enduring many difficulties from both without and within. And when 2 Timothy starts, Paul takes time to remind Timothy of his roots. He talks about his grandmother and his mother's faith, of his calling and of his gifts that were stirred up within him and the laying on of hands. But then the text that we're going to look at, beginning in verse 8, Paul shifts from reminding Timothy of his roots, his gifts, and his callings to say, what I really need to remind you of is the gospel. All right, so let's look at this together, beginning in verse 8, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul says this, Therefore, which means in light of everything I've just said to you, Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. He's talking about Jesus. Don't be ashamed of the story of Jesus. Don't be ashamed of the cross of Jesus Christ. Don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through what? The gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. Any English teachers think that was a run-on sentence? That felt like a run-on sentence to me. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he, God, the Spirit of God, is able to guard until the day, until that day, what has been entrusted to me, the gospel. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. What a rich passage. So much depth and value in here. And what we're going to see is three things. We're going to learn three things about the gospel this morning from this text. And I hope that it's going to help us better understand what our value is when we talk about valuing the gospel. And the first thing we're going to learn is this, that the gospel is way above you. The gospel is way above you. In 1875, there was a man named William Ernest Henley who had tuberculosis. And as a result of his tuberculosis, due to complications from it, he had to have one leg amputated. And when he came out of the surgery, the doctor said to him, we actually have to take your other leg as well. And he refused to let them take his other leg. Instead, he found a surgeon, a famous surgeon named Joseph Lister, a famous English surgeon who was able to save Henley's remaining leg after multiple surgical interventions on the foot. And while Henley was recovering from these surgeries in the infirmary, he wrote a poem. It's a poem you've probably read at some point in your past. It's a poem called Invictus. It's a very famous poem. And if you don't recognize the name of the poem, you will almost certainly recognize these words from the poem. In his poem, Invictus, he wrote these two short sentences. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Now, you ever heard that? I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of of my soul. And for years and years to come, people will use that to inspire sports teams and other people to say, come on, you're the master of your own fate. 
Come on, you're the captain of your soul. You're in control. And you know, while that's inspiring, there's a problem with it. And the problem is, it's not true. It's inspiring, but it's not true. You're not the master of your own fate. That's way above you. You're not the captain of your soul. That's above you also. You know, in his, you don't even have to look at it from a Christian perspective, or you don't even have to necessarily believe in God to see that this is true. In his book, Outliers, Malcolm Gladwell, the Canadian author, he makes a convincing argument that individual hard work and determination, as important as those two things are, they're just two small factors in any person's success. Now, for a second, think about this. What if Henley had been born earlier, before the medical technology existed for him to have those surgeries. It doesn't matter how much he believed he was the master of his own fate. He was going to lose the other leg. What if Henley had been born at the same time, but in a different place, in a third world country, where that sort of stuff wasn't available? What if the surgeon said, I'm not available. I don't, I don't take difficult cases like that. What if the surgeon hadn't been trained? What if the surgeon wasn't a risk taker? What if Henley lived, you know, Henley lived at a different time? You know, Henley actually lived at a time in history when literacy among men in England skyrocketed from about 60% to nearly 100%, exactly when Henley lived. If Henley had been born earlier, there's a high likelihood that he would have been illiterate and unable to even write the words to Invictus. So we have this sort of idea in our heads in America that it's like sort of the American dream, rags to riches, self-made man, we control our own lives, but we drag that into our understanding of our faith and our gospel. But here's the thing, the gospel is way way above you. Now, it's not above you in the sense that you can't understand it. A child can understand the gospel. It's above you in the sense that it's not in your hands. It's in God's hands. It's his work. And so when we talk about the gospel being way above us, we're talking about the sovereign work of God and the way that God chooses to accomplish his work. Do you know that you and I would not choose to do things the way God chose to do things? When Paul writes to Timothy, hey, Timothy, don't be ashamed about Jesus. What's that all about? Was that just mere sentiment, or was he have a, did he have a real reason for saying so? One of the commentators said this, the temptation for Timothy to feel ashamed was not a figment of Paul's imagination. The cross of Christianity was a scandal. It may seem incredible that people would view Jesus and the cross as shameful now, but then both the Jews and the Gentiles viewed crucifixion as the ultimate emblem of disgrace and dishonor. Polite pagan company never even mentioned the equivalent of the English word cross. They wouldn't even say the word. It was too loathsome. It was too obscene. And in the sophisticated Greek environment, which is where Timothy was, the preaching of the cross was held to be absurd. And so the idea of a Jewish peasant becoming the substitutionary atonement for people's sin was laughable. Educated Greeks in urban communities, like the ones that Timothy was trying to reach, they snickered and laughed as such crudeness. And so Timothy here is proclaiming Jesus crucified, and people are just laughing at him. Your Lord, your Savior, went to the cross because of what their understanding of the cross was. But God chose the foolishness of the cross to accomplish his plan, and that's the gospel. And here's what I want us to notice this morning, that God accomplished his plan, that God brought about his gospel, not in spite of suffering, but in it, through it, and because of it. And sometimes we think that God's plan for our life will keep us free from suffering. And we think, well, God's working sometimes in our lives. And then when we do suffer, we say, well, God's working in spite of our suffering. Is it possible that God wants to work in your suffering, through your suffering? I'm not trying to say that God delights 
in our suffering. But I'm saying that God has a bigger plan than our comfort. God has a bigger plan than our convenience. And we're not created to stay on this world and be comfortable forever. This is true of our own lives, that God will work in and through our suffering, not in spite of it. Think back through your life and ask yourself this. What seasons of life have I grown the most? In which seasons of life have I most maybe um, learned the most about myself? What seasons of life have I learned the most about others? What moments of life have I learned the most about God? And in many cases, when is it? It's when we suffer. It's when things are difficult. You know, as Paul is writing to this, he's suffering. He knows that Timothy is suffering in a different way. Paul's in chains. Timothy's not in chains, but he's suffering. People are doubting his leadership from within the church. People are doubting his authority to preach from outside of the church. So it's a community of suffering. And as Paul's writing this, I have to wonder if he thought back to when he was converted and called to serve God. Now, Paul wasn't always named Paul. If you know the story in, in Acts, Paul's originally was named Saul. And before he was Paul, leader of the church, author of two-thirds of the New Testament, he was Saul, persecutor of the church and murderer of Christians. And he had this tremendous conversion experience. And everybody began to hear, Saul's a Christian now. It's like Saul went from that side, and now he's on our side. But you know how the Christians must have been, Ben? a little unsure, right? Like, is this a trip? Is this a trick? Is this a trap? Are they just trying to like get us to all go see Saul and then he's gonna kill us? And so God speaks to a man named Ananias. I want you to see this. I think this will be on the screen for you. Acts chapter nine, it says, but the Lord said to him, speaking of Ananias, go for he, speaking of Saul, who would become Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And look at verse 16. For I will show him how famous he will become for me. And I will show him how great his life's gonna be how healthy he's going to be, how wealthy he's going to be, how wonderful things are going to be, how smooth things are going to be. No, he says, for I will show him how he what? He must suffer for the sake of my name. Suffering was part of Paul's life. He was beaten. He was nearly shipwrecked. He went through much. Why? For the sake of God's name. Now listen, this is not how we would choose to do things, but remember, the gospel's way above us. We serve a sovereign God who chooses in his wisdom and in his love how he's going to accomplish his purposes. And when we look at Saul, it should not just cause us to question how God does things, but also it should cause us to go, I don't know if I would pick who God picks, right? I don't know if I would have picked him. I don't know if you remember our recess time or gym time at school when you're little having to line up and get picked for teams. And how would they pick teams? The strongest, right? The biggest, the fastest, the most athletic would get picked first. I was always picked a little bit later for some reason. They couldn't see my athleticism. But, but the, the, the strongest and the biggest get picked first, but not God. He chooses a murderer of the Christians to lead his church. Now, that doesn't make any sense. By the way, that's good news for you and me, because who would choose us? Who would choose me? Who would choose you? But also, who are the people out there that you go, I, would not, I can never see them serving God. I actually would be okay if they never came to church because I don't get along with them. I actually hope they get what's coming to them. And we have that sometimes in our hearts that, ah, I don't think God can choose. God chooses whoever he wants to choose, and he chooses to work however he wants to work because he is a sovereign God. Now, the gospel is way above you and me, but it's more than his sovereign work. It's also his, one more word for you, it's his sufficient 
Sovereign and sufficient. It says in that passage that he saved us and he called us, not because of our own works, but because of his purpose and his grace. And we can't skip past this, even though you've heard this before. You are not saved because of your works. Your righteousness, your efforts, your good works, your behavior, your religiosity cannot save you. You cannot earn the message of the gospel, the truth of the gospel. You cannot prove yourself. You cannot perform your way in. You can't do it. And while that should be good news, and it is good news, for some reason it doesn't always hit our hearts that way. Because what we really want in our core is to prove ourselves. What we really want is to perform. I noticed this with my daughters. My two oldest daughters are taking piano lessons from their Aunt Lisa. And they're supposed to practice every single day. And they do great, but they never want to practice without me there. Daddy, I'm practicing. Come on. I'm like, I'm watching the Yankees. Leave me alone. No, I don't say that. I do get up eventually during the halftime or during, during you know, between innings. I'll go over and I'll listen to them practice. But they, they never just want to practice. What changes in the room? There's, a, there's somebody to perform for. So it's always like, you know, little kids, watch me. Watch me do this. Daddy, mommy, pay attention. Why? Because in our very nature, we're performers. We want to be seen. And it doesn't change as we get older. I go to the YMCA most mornings, and oftentimes just to kind of get loose, I'll shoot hoops before I go and do cardio and before I do some lifting. I'll go over and I'll shoot hoops. And a lot of times, at that time in the morning, the gym over there is open. By the way, anyone want to come shoot hoops with me, you're welcome to come. But it's, it's, it's open. And so I'll be over there shooting hoops. And when no one else is there, I'm very relaxed. I'm just kind of shooting naturally. But recently, there were a couple guys who came and they were waiting for their game to start. And they sat on the bench and they're watching me. And they start changing out of their shoes into their sneakers. And what happened to me? Now I'm all tense. Now it's like I'm on, now it's like it's Sports Center and everybody's watching me. And now, like, every shot that goes up, my, my worth is at stake. Every single, and God forbid I throw an air ball up and then I gotta act like, oh, what in the, look at the ball, like, what's wrong with you? Like, measure the hoop. Is this regulation? You know, like, I don't know those people. I may never see them again, but for some reason, I can't not want to prove myself to them. And so when the gospel says you can't prove yourself, it actually, although it's great news, it's good news, it actually doesn't resonate with us initially because we'd rather earn our way in. We'd rather be able to pat ourselves on the back and be impressed with ourselves. But it's all, it's not our works, it's his purpose and it's his grace. Now, what are the benefits of believing that the gospel is way above us? Three things. Number one, if you really believe this, not just cognitively, but spiritually, functionally, in your heart, if you really believe that the gospel is way above you, it's his sovereign work and it's his sufficient work, here's three things that happen. Number one, you will not feel superior to other people. You just won't. You won't think you're better than other people. You won't look around the room like this and go, I'm sitting here and they're sitting there. I raised my hands then and they didn't raise their hands and I'm here and what about all the people that were here last week that didn't come back? I thank God I'm better than them. Thank God I'm better than them, right? When you realize it's his work, it's sovereign and sufficient and I'm the recipient of it, 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 you can't feel superior. Secondly, you will live with this constant sense of gratitude, always grateful, always thankful, everything a gift, every day a gift, every breath a gift, everything a gift. And then thirdly, and this is good news for you, by the way, you will not be plagued with the nagging feelings of questions like this, am I good enough? Did I do enough this week? Does he love me? Have I impressed him with my performance? Why? Because you've received Jesus' perfect work on your behalf and you can rest in it. 
and you can respond to it. And it's his work that speaks for you, not your, week, not your work that speaks for you. So the gospel is way above you. Secondly, we see in this text something else. The gospel is not only way above you, the gospel was way before you. The gospel was way before you. This is going to be quick. The second point's quick, so stick with me. You notice in verse 9 it said, all these things he gave us in Christ Jesus, and then there's this little phrase, before the ages began. When I was studying this passage this week, those were the three words I could not stop thinking about. Those are the three words that the Holy Spirit just lit up in my heart. It was all, in, all the grace that I need, all the grace that you need was in Christ Jesus when? This morning, waiting for us? Did he, did he, did he pull all his grace together yesterday? Say, I'm gonna have it ready for you tomorrow. All the grace that you need was ready before the ages began. Before the ages began. And that was resonating in my heart. And here's what it means. The grace that you and I need today to love God, to honor God, and to serve God, it, was, it preexisted in Christ. It preexisted everything. It preexisted creation. Before time, before creation, there was enough grace in Christ Jesus for you today. There was grace in Jesus before you were ever thought of. It was in him for you. So what this means is that God knows everything that you need today, and his grace is sufficient. You know, God's not running out of grace. He's not running out because it all preexisted in Christ. All the grace that every human being will ever need for as long as God has us on this earth, it was in Christ before creation, so you lack for nothing. God has provided everything. It's so clear in Paul's letter to the Ephesians uh, chapter one, I don't know if we have this on the screen for you, verse three through six, but it says this. There it is, great. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now look at verse four. Even as he chose us in him, when? Yesterday, last week, the day you raised your hand and came to the front and accepted Jesus into your heart, is that the day that God chose you? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons, and we can say sons and daughters, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of whose will? Your will? Your choosing? No, his will, his choosing, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. The gospel, you get this this morning? The gospel was way before you. It was way before you. This story started way before you. It will continue after you, and it's his story. Now, the benefits of believing that the gospel is way before is two things. Number one, you can have peace about tomorrow. You can. You don't know what's coming tomorrow. You got a schedule. You got some things probably on your to-do list, but none of us actually know what tomorrow will look like but we can have peace about it because God knows. And listen to this, and some of you need to receive this into your spirit this morning. Every single thing you need tomorrow is already in Christ. Amen. And it's been there since before the ages. Every moment of help you need, every moment of wisdom, every moment of grace, every moment of strength, every moment of self-discipline and self-control, it's existed in Christ from before the ages began. And so we can have peace about tomorrow. And the other thing that this means for us is that we can trust his work and we can be patient. We can trust his timing. You know, we like things, true or false, we like things done according to our timing. True. I don't even like it when someone takes too long to turn in front of me. 
right? That's not my timing. Like, come on, get to the side of the road and then make your turn. Why are you stopping in the middle of John Glenn, uh, coming to a stop and then turning right? That's why you have a shoulder. Get over, right? I don't even, I don't even have my, this is a counseling session for me right now. <laughs> I don't even want to trust that driver with timing. I want it to be my way. And God says, trust me with the timing of your life. Trust me with every gift that I have for you. Trust me with the grace. If you feel like there's not enough grace for today, his timing is perfect. He gave you all the grace you need for this day. And he'll give you all the grace that you need for tomorrow so we can trust. Okay, so the gospel is way above us. The gospel was way before us. And then lastly, this morning, the gospel makes a way for you. The gospel was way above you. It was way before you. And it makes a way for you. And real quick, Here's four things that makes a way for you. It makes a way for you to receive it. Did you notice that it said that Jesus is the one who abolished death? Jesus is the one who brought life. It's his work. So the gospel says not achieve this, but the gospel says receive this. It's one of the simplest, most important truths that your heart will ever wrap itself around, that the gospel is not achieve it, the gospel is receive it. Not achieve righteousness, but receive righteousness. Number two, the gospel makes a way for you not just to receive it, but to follow it. Did you notice that Paul said, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. The gospel is not just a get out of hell free card and then go do whatever you want, live however you want, be your own person. The same gospel that gets you in is the gospel that grows you up. The gospel that saves you is the gospel that shapes you. And if you're not growing in your faith, the problem is is you don't understand the gospel. You've forgotten the gospel. And so it's the gospel that gives us the power to follow. It makes a way for us to follow. Thirdly, the gospel makes a way for us to guard it. Paul said, guard the good deposit entrusted to you, which is the gospel. What Paul is saying to Timothy, don't be misled by false teachers. Don't be deceived by counterfeit gospels. You know, there are still many counterfeit gospels being preached outside of the church and inside of the church. I wrote down seven of them. Let me read them to you. The gospel of good works, you save yourself. The gospel of live however you want. The gospel of spiritual consumerism, come to church and get yours and then don't think about it again until next Sunday. The gospel of health and wealth. The gospel of mystical experiences, that you need to somehow get these uh, sort of mysterious experiences in order to experience God. God has come down to earth so that we can experience him. The gospel of escapism, that we just wait around until he gets us out of here. And we just kind of huddle up as a church and just kind of just keep our fingers crossed. Jesus, come get us, come get us. No, we're, we're more than conquerors. We're supposed to extend his reign and rule everywhere we go. We're supposed to see creation be restored. We're not supposed to wait around for him to take us out of here. He is going to take us to him at some time, but that's not our motivation. We're not here to escape. We're here to love and to live like Jesus. Here's another one, the seventh one. This one's a little messy, I think, especially in America. The gospel of blind nationalism. An over-devotion to our own country. Uh, putting, placing our hope in our own country, in our nation, in our leaders. This sort of idea that it's just, I don't want to step into it too much, but there is a circle in evangelicalism that has blind nationalism. And there's a loyalty to certain people and certain things, regardless of the kingdom of God, regardless of what the values of the kingdom of God are. And so what are we called to do as a church when it comes to our leaders and it comes to our nation? We're called to pray for them. And we're really called to, in our lives, be good citizens. But then beyond that, we're not called to worship them. Okay? And there's a difference. We don't worship our nation. We're thankful for our nation. We're thankful for our history, and we're thankful for those who, who laid their lives down and risked their lives to give us freedom. We're incredibly grateful for all of that, but we don't fall at that altar. 
We don't worship that. We worship the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of America. And there's a lot of church circles, Christian circles, where they're confused about that. And it's a false counterfeit gospel. And Paul's saying to Timothy, you got to guard it. You got to guard the gospel. And then the last thing, there's a way not just there's a way not just to receive it, follow it, and guard it, but there's a way to share it. He says, I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, for I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And listen, here's what I want to challenge you this morning, like Paul challenged Timothy. Step into your calling. Step into it. Get off the bench. Get on the field. Get off the sidelines and get on the field. This is not a spectator thing. This is all hands in. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Paul was appointed to be a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. Now, you probably weren't appointed to be those three things. Maybe some of you were, but you were appointed to be something, to do something. What is it? Step into your calling. The gospel makes a way for us to share the gospel, to go out there and proclaim the gospel with our words and with our lives. And let me finish with this thought. The gospel does not just make a way for you. Great that you're here. Great that you're in. But the gospel wasn't just to make a way for you. The gospel was to make a way for your family members who don't know Jesus, for your friends, for your neighbors, for your coworkers. You know, our vision statement here at Trinity is simple. It's gospel transformation in every area of our lives and in every life in our area. Gospel transformation, what's that? That's deep heart level change, spiritual change, social change, all sorts of God change. Gospel transformation in every area of my life. God, start with me, change my heart, change my life. But ultimately, what's the desired outcome? That every life in our area, in Clay, in the town of Clay, in the town of Salina, in the time of Lysander, in Van Buren, in Cicero, that every life in our area would be changed. And so, just as the gospel has made a way for us, we need to be ready to be used by God to make a way for others, to hear and to encounter and to make a way for more. You know, that's why we're doing the, the renovation out there. That's why we're doing that work. We're, we're creating more space for people to come in and gather together. And we're going to be creating this cafe visitor center where the offices used to be. We could still use those offices, but we're sacrificing those offices because we believe that God's called us to make a way and to make space, and to make room. Now, why are we doing it? Well, forget the fact that, you know, as the, as the leadership and as the church council studied this and read some articles on this, everybody says best practices, invest your money into high visibility areas where you can create more space for people to do life together. And that's what everyone says now. As a church, you should be putting your money into your lobby, into that sort of space. That's what they said. Forget that. I mean, it's true, but that's not why we did it. Forget the fact that the funding was available because we had a, uh, a long-time investment mature last year. And so we haven't even, have, haven't even asked people for money for this project because the funding was there. So set that aside, even if that wasn't true. The reason we're doing that is because we believe that there are going to be people who are going to walk into that door and just that space right there is going to make them feel welcomed. It's going to make them feel invited. It's going to give us a place to have meetings after church saying, meet the pastors. If you're new this Sunday, please go right back out there. We got a gift for you. Meet the pastors. It's going to give us a space to do uh, membership classes and on-ramp people. It's going to give places for people to come together and just share life together. See, that space is not about making space for coffee. We can put coffee in the lobby. It's not even about making space for community. We can sort of try and force that into other spaces, but it's about making space for your friends. It's about making space for your family. It's about making space for your neighbors and your coworkers. Here's what I want to challenge you to do over the next six weeks as we're working on that. Every time you walk by it, look in that space and in faith, envision 
your friend in there. Envision your family member standing in there holding a cup of coffee. Envision your neighbor, that coworker that you've been praying for. Walk by and in faith, in an act of faith, an act of prayer, look in there and just stop and go, I can see it. I can see them in there, part of the community, because the gospel is drawing them in. Now, how will we get there? One simple way, faithfulness to the gospel. This is our value, the gospel. This is first on purpose because this is the most important thing. This is what separates Christianity from every other worldview and every other religion, that we believe in a God who is rescuing, redeeming, and restoring all of creation in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together this morning.